This is the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast channel. My name's Jamie Smart, and today I am joined by Dr. Margot Lodge. Margot is a consultant geriatrician at Caulfield Hospital, and we are discussing changes in cognition across the perioperative period. Thank you for your time, Margot. It's a pleasure. Margot, I deliberately use the term changes in cognition across the perioperative period rather than the often used term postoperative cognitive dysfunction. What do you think is the best way to describe and discuss this phenomenon? I think um, speaking as a clinical geriatrician, Jamie, the concept of postoperative cognitive dysfunction or POCD um, for me has a strong place in the research setting but is more difficult from a clinical perspective and certainly something I don't use when I'm having discussions with patients and families. POCD is very important in terms of being able to objectively define a set of criteria that enable us to monitor the cognitive effects of anaesthesia and surgery. Um, And in doing so, hopefully that will be able to, down the track, give us some uh, clear ideas around what some of the objectively defined modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors are in that setting. When I'm talking to patients and families, it's difficult to um, explain a research definition that is not yet um, uh, defined in a consensus manner across the literature. And what's more important to patients and their families is um, an understanding of the fact that there may be a change and typically deterioration in cognition. And I often talk about memory and thinking with patients and families. Okay, so so they're the sort of change we're talking about. What what other changes can occur to can occur to cognitive function in the perioperative period? So um, typically, the changes uh, tend to occur postoperatively. Um, the most acute change is often that of an emergence delirium, which I don't tend to see as a geriatrician. That's something you would see more often in the recovery period, as someone emerges from anaesthesia. Um, the more um, readily observable change that I see is that of postoperative delirium. And that's an entity distinct from postoperative cognitive dysfunction in so much as a postoperative delirium occurs um, in an acute manner and is characterised by a fluctuation um, in level of consciousness and also um, typically is associated with an inattentive kind of picture. And a postoperative delirium can occur typically any stage around the 24 to 48-hour mark postoperatively and is something that we often miss in our inpatients in the hospital setting because we're not screening for it regularly. The important thing, I think, with postoperative delirium is to recognise that there are three different types, that being a hyperactive delirium, which is the um, easily picked patient who is awake all night, um, often a bit paranoid, a little bit aggressive, difficult for the nursing staff to manage, and they're um, very regularly, rapidly alerted to medical staff. You can also get a hypoactive delirium and they're the patients that we miss because they're the patients who are really easy to care for. Um, They tend to lie in bed or in a chair. They're very placid, very compliant. Um, And as a result of us not screening for their postoperative delirium, we are under-diagnosing and under-treating these patients. And then you can also get a mixture of the two types. Which groups of patients? It'd be, it'd be nice to know which group to look out for. Mm-hmm. What, what are the, which are the patients that are most at risk of de- developing these changes? So uh, for 
all patients, the, the strongest risk factor for delirium is that of pre-existing cognitive impairment. And that tends, it seems to be the same in the uh, surgical setting as well in the post-operative setting. So they're people who may or may not have a formal diagnosis of dementia. They may have just been a bit not quite right for the last few months as per their family. And um, they are also potentially the ones that the family members will describe as having some memory problems or, you know, just struggling a little bit. Um, there are other patient kind of factors that increase the risk of delirium, um, including mood distort disorders, frailty, um, sensory disturbance. And then we come on board as well as um, medical staff. So surgical factors that um, tend to predispose patients to a post-operative delirium. So that's in so much as cardiac surgery, more so the non-cardiac surgery. We know that hip fracture patients have a very high risk of post-operative delirium. Um, and then the post-operative complications that can occur as well also predispose patients to uh, post-operative delirium. So um, patients who post-operatively have issues with pain, with um, polypharmacy, with urinary retention, with medical complications are all at increased risk of delirium. Okay then, are there any ways that we as perioperative clinicians can identify those patients that are most susceptible to cognitive changes perioperatively? The, I think the most important thing we can do and that I think is done poorly is to screen these patients for that pre-existing cognitive impairment. And there is a large number of patients who are um, community dwelling older people who have a degree of cognitive impairment and that is undiagnosed. Um, so there has been some work around that um, in the perioperative or preoperative setting. Um, in a UK population of patients undergoing uh, vascular surgery, both uh, acute or elective and emergency, uh, they found that using the MOCA, which is one of the screening tools, nearly 70% of their patients had cognitive impairment. And of that 70%, 88% of those had no formal diagnosis pre-morbidly um, and pre-operatively of that impairment. Um, we know in a CAGS population that um, excluding patients with a formal diagnosis of dementia, over half of patients had undiagnosed cognitive impairment. And we also know there is good evidence that if we're not formally screening these patients for cognitive impairment using recognised screening tools, that as clinicians, and particularly in a busy uh, pre-admission clinic or a surgical bookings clinic, that, that the um, this strong risk factor for post-operative delirium is missed. Um, there are a number of tools that can be used to screen these patients and some of them can take as few as, you know, three, four, five minutes and there, in, there are some longer screening tools that take up to ten minutes or so. Um, and I think the role for the screening tools is to identify those patients at risk and then, uh, depending, I suppose, on the timeframes preoperatively, determine whether they need further investigation from a cognitive perspective. And if that's not felt to be appropriate, that in, at the very least we are um, actively seeking out this really important risk factor for these patients. Um, we screen for other organ dysfunction and we ask about um, exercise tolerance. We ask about angina symptoms. We determine their MYHA class. We determine if they've got any symptoms consistent with peripheral vascular, vascular disease because we know that those comorbidities increase a patient's perioperative risk. If we're not doing the same kind of systems review for brain-related comorbidities, then I think we're doing our patients quite a disfavour. 
But I guess with, with those other systems, one of the other reasons that we screen for them is because we feel that we can tailor what we do mm. uh, to, to hopefully improve patient outcomes. Mm. Um, so I guess that raises the question, even if we identify the patients that are at risk of cognitive changes, is there anything we can do about it? So there's two elements, I think, to answering that question. First of all, I think it's one of the really important things is that the informed consent process is appropriately informed. And if we know that uh, a patient having a diagnosis of cognitive impairment, be that dementia or mild cognitive impairment, increases their risk of poor post-operative outcomes, including um, wound issues, bowel and bladder issues, length of stay concerns, medical complications such as cardiorespiratory um, complications, then that should be forming part of the consent process. And that is something that patients and their families, if they're involved in that discussion, um, should be aware of. And that's where um, identifying that risk factor does affect the, um, the patient's course throughout their kind of pre and post-operative journey. We also do know that um, there are delirium prevention strategies that will work well and there are also, uh, and typically a lot of those are in the post-operative period, and also that, um, that a comprehensive geriatric assessment, which is kind of our tool as geriatricians and as our multidisciplinary team, can um, be performed successfully and effectively in the pre-operative period and improve a raft of post-operative outcomes. And certainly the group, um, the POPs group over at Guys and St Thomas's in London have recently published an RCT looking at the role for the pre-operative co uh, comprehensive geriatric assessment in improving post-operative outcomes. Um, cognition is but a small component of the CGA, but um, again, if, if we know that um, involving our patients in a multidisciplinary, multi-component intervention tool can improve their outcomes, then we should be better identifying which patients may benefit from what is at the moment not a routine um, preoperative optimization pathway. Mm, okay. Well, look, let's look at an example, and you, and you talked a bit about informed consent in there. Say we're asked to look after an 80-year-old patient whose independence is threatened by osteoarthritis and whose daughter is concerned that, that um, their mother is, is, has had a few short-term memory pro um, problems of late. They get told by their orthopaedic surgeon that if they undergo a total knee replacement, then their independence will be maintained and may even increase. However, from what we're discussing, there's a chance that such patients may in fact lose their independence after this surgery. Should we be having this discussion with the patient and their family? I think, yeah, as I, as I said, that's definitely something that should be um, discussed with the patients so that they're aware of what their post-operative course may involve. Um, in this specific case scenario, trying to determine uh, how likely it is that the osteoarthritis and the functional limitations of that will truly um, take away a patient's in a, uh, ability to remain independently at home alone would be important because that, again, would be part of weighing up the, that risk and benefit kind of profile that ultimately helps determine whether we as clinicians recommend an intervention such as a, a knee replacement for this patient. In the real world... Most patients with osteoarthritis can be provided with a significant degree of support to remain independent and to a degree functional at home. Um, and a lot of that is from a physical functioning perspective. What concerns me from a cognitive functioning perspective is that once there is a significant decline in cognitive function, it is very difficult for us in the subacute setting to try and discharge the patient's 
back home if that's their desired outcome as there are only so many services we can put in in the community and ambulatory care setting to support such patients at home. Uh, there is, a, is yet no kind of clear risk stratification um, score that can map a patient's performance on a cognitive screening tool as to the likelihood of them developing a post-operative delirium or a deterioration in their uh, cognitive function post-operatively. But if I was seeing this patient um, in clinic, I would be certainly wanting to further explore the cognitive profile and decline that they've been experiencing um, previously and use that to help um, to a degree discuss the likelihood with the patient and the family that whilst their knee may be functioning beautifully post-operatively, if they are unable to safely remain at home by themselves due to a risk from a cognitive functioning perspective, that may not be uh, an appropriate and acceptable outcome for them. And I guess, Margot, most of the most of the changes we've been discussing uh, are short-term, mm. um, but we're sort of now getting into the realm of long-term issues. So are there, are there long-term sequelae from from this perioperative um, cognitive decline that we should be considering and thinking about? Yeah, so one of the big concerns about um, any form of delirium, whether that's a post-operative delirium or other other, um, cause of delirium, is that of the high risk of progression to dementia. And there, there is good evidence that having a delirium increases your risk of progressing to dementia in somebody who did not have a diagnosis of dementia. It can accelerate the Alzheimer's pathway is one of the thoughts. Um, and we commonly see patients who have a post-operative delirium who may not go on to develop, by definition, a dementia diagnosis, but who still... Um, are unable to 100% recover cognitively and functionally from that cognitive knock that they've had. Uh, and often we see as a result of both the cognitive impairment and then the subsequent or the sometimes um, co-occurring physical complications of an operation uh, and post-operative delirium that patients are unable to physically functionally return to their pre-morbid level of function. And that's really important for our elderly patients. A lot of my patients um, feel that quality of life is more important than prolongation of life. And sure, if an osteoarthritic knee is causing a terrible functional quality of life, then perhaps getting on and trying to fix that and managing pain and managing mobility is really important. But I talk to a lot of my patients and they say to me, well, if I had to choose between, you know, removing the pain in my knee and having to move to a nursing home, I'd be pretty happy to put up with a painful knee. And we see with these patients, particularly those frail and those vulnerable older people, that um, a prolonged acute post-operative course and then a sub-acute, post-operative, uh, sub-acute stay and rehabilitation attempt may only lead to them being able to be discharged to residential care. And that long-term sequelae is something that is... Um, quite unacceptable for a number of older people. Yeah, look, I agree. And I guess um, to look at the bigger picture, we're all aware of the ageing demographic. And some figures I've read recently estimated that within 30 years, one quarter of the Australian population will be aged over 65 and almost half of the anaesthetics that we will be giving will be given to this group. So if we're talking about a problem that affects the elderly patient and concerned about outcomes, 
What do you think will be the impact of all these changes on healthcare funding and allocation of resources? We need more geriatricians. <laughs> um, there will be, yeah, obviously a, a larger number of patients presenting um, and often for elective surgery too, um, who are older, who are more comorbid, who are more frail, who are more vulnerable. And I guess as perioperative physicians, we work in a system that has finite resources and we have to be concerned about our resource utilisation. But also I think this kind of comes back to that question of is this the most appropriate thing for our patient and what are our patient's goals? Um, and, you know, that idea that just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do it and clearly clearly delineating with patients what their expectations are may, or may um, mitigate to a degree some of that resource uh, costliness that may potentially um, be projected. I think there are also a larger number of older people who are living well and who are living to an older age at a fitter state too and we need to um, be aware that just because they're in their 80s doesn't necessarily mean that we should be excluding them from the elective surgery that um, we'd be offering a 50-year-old without a second thought. Um, but we need to use our resources appropriately from a wider healthcare perspective, but then also at a patient level, we need to be tailoring um, our resource delivery to be appropriately patient-centred too. And that, in that context, is kind of doubly important. Margot, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jamie.